Welcome everybody and thanks for uh, bearing with us. We had a bus blocking the road and you know the DC government decided they were going to dig up some patch over here in our, next to our beautiful building and like I thought all that was taken care of when we moved in but I guess they just like to do construction. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, welcome to CSIS. I'm Andrew Schwartz and um, it's my pleasure to introduce the Schieffer series. This is really historic because I don't know if two the two the current Face the Nation host and the former Face the Nation host are here at the same space. This is like like CBS doesn't even get this. So you guys are really in for a treat and you know my colleagues here are not chopped liver either. So you're really going to enjoy this one. Thank you for being here. Um, I'd like to thank TCU, um, our longtime partner in the Schieffer series, for all their support. Uh, the man who started this series from TCU, the former vice chancellor, Larry Lauer is here. And I'd like to thank Larry uh, for, where are you, Larry? Uh, Larry, thank you very much for being here. This is, and PJ's here too, P, the distinguished PJ Crowley. Um, this is, this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for Larry. And, um, you know, I think I speak for Bob. We, we owe Larry a great debt um, for being so entrepreneurial and, and helping us get this off the ground. Um, in addition, of course, I'd like to uh, thank the, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation for their support. They uh, make this all possible. Um, and we've got several of these coming up in the next couple months before uh, the summer really kicks in. And we'll make sure all of you get that um, uh, by email. Um, you can always reach us here at CSIS as well. You know, you probably have my email. It's easy to aschwartz at csis.org. Um, thanks again for being here. Welcome to the Schieffer Series. And with that, I'll turn it over to Bob Schieffer. Thank you very much, Andrew. Welcome to uh, another uh, uh, symposium. I call this one Connecting the Long Distance Dots in a Very Dangerous World. Iran, North Korea, and of course uh, the uh, tariffs recently announced by the administration. And what a great group we have uh, put together here as uh, as Andrew just said, first, uh, Margaret Brennan, who is the new moderator of Face the Nation. She follows a very distinguished group of CBS News correspondents <laughs> who have held that job. <laughs> and she's probably smarter than all of them, I'll tell you that. She, uh, Margaret uh, impressed me when she walked in the door. She's the best hire uh, we've made at CBS in a long, long time. And I think she's, uh, she's going to, I'm really, looking forward to watching her as she uh, takes command of this broadcast. She's already doing a great job. Uh, Margaret uh, covered uh, global financial markets for Bloomberg. Uh, she joined CBS in uh, uh, 2012. She was also with CNBC. Uh, before coming to face, she covered the White House for CBS and will continue covering uh, foreign affairs. So. During the week, she'll be uh, over at the State Department a lot of the time and doing all our foreign, foreign affairs stuff. Graduate of the University of Virginia and is a native of Connecticut. Down at the other end, uh, Matthew Goodman. Uh, he's senior advisor for Asian economics here at CSIS. Before that, he was in the Obama White House as director for APEC and the East Asia Summit uh, on the National Security Council. He was on the NSC during the Bush administration. Uh, from 88 to 97, he was an economist at the Treasury Department, spent five years as the financial attache at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo, 
currently is chair of the Japan uh, America Society. Sumi Terry over there uh, is former Korea analyst at the CIA and the former Korea director at the National Security Council, currently a senior advisor at the Bauer Group and splits her time between New York, Washington, and Seoul, considered truly one of the leading experts on Korea. She was at the CIA, uh, well, she was at the NSC from 2008 to 2009, before that at the CIA from 2001 to 2009. Her PhD is from the Fletcher School at Tufts. And then, of course, my friend John Alterman over here. Uh, he's a senior vice president, holds the Brzezinski Chair uh, in Global Strategy here at CSIS, director of the Middle East program, member of the policy planning staff at the State Department before he got into the think tank business. Uh, he was a teacher also at Johns Hopkins and George Washington and Harvard, where he received his PhD. And, uh, and this counts a lot in my book, he was an aide to the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan up at the U.S. Senate. He's the author of four books on the Middle East and has been the editor of five. So John, glad to have you with us again. Well, this week is, is a big one uh, here in Washington. Uh, French President Macron is uh, here, got here yesterday. Uh, Angela Merkel will be here toward the end of the week, and these, book, uh, these visits take on really added importance uh, because the United States is now dealing with three of the greatest challenges it faces, and that is what to do about North Korea. The President is talking about getting uh, out of the Iran uh, nuclear agreement, and we have seen the announcement of the uh, tariffs and the impact. All of these things are connected. Margaret, clearly what everybody on all sides agrees with is these are, are very, uh, very, very uh, dangerous times. I don't think there's anybody that would disagree with that. Uh, and so what I want to try to do today is all of these things we're dealing with, it's not happening in a vacuum. All of them have some impact on the other components here. So you interviewed the uh, foreign minister of Iran uh, that was on uh, Face the Nation over the weekend. It was a fascinating interview, I thought. So where do you think that's going? We know that Macron wants the United States to stay into the agreement. Uh, he and the president had a news conference today. I guess I, I would ask you this question. Uh, if you were uh, covering that news conference today, uh, we know about the headline uh, that he told the, uh, the guy he had nominated to run the VA that maybe he didn't want to do that after all. He'd leave it up to him, but maybe he wouldn't want to go through it. So we understand he's out. But other than that, what, what was the headline today? Well, I think one of the more memorable quotes from the president was when he was with uh, the French president, Manuel Macron, and he was asked, what, what do you plan to do about the Iran nuclear deal? And what the French president has been asking our president to do, which is agree to sort of this face-saving measure, this side deal that would address some of the president's concerns without actually violating the international accord that was agreed to in, uh, back in 2015. And the president said, no one knows what I'm going to do. 
<laughs> and that basically sums up uh, where the policy is right now. He is being pushed. Well, um, that's reassuring. I, I, I'm, it was, it's an exact quote. <laughs> so, uh, but what you have right now are some really intense negotiations behind the scenes with uh, France, Germany, the UK, and the US, basically all our friends within the deal, because remember China and Russia are also signatories. Um, but they're not part of the side agreement that they're trying to work out uh, to say the things that the president doesn't like, the fact that Iran can continue to test missiles, that he doesn't have the full military inspections or inspections of military sites that they'd like, and the so-called sunset, the idea that there's a uh, Iran has to, to essentially stay below a one-year um, breakout period, a, a ability to make a nuclear weapon. Um, they call it the so-called so sunset clause because it would expire within 10 to 15 years, depending on how you read certain things. I know John can tell you the ins and outs of that, but that's where the biggest argument is. And some of the biggest arguments on that are with our friends, the Germans. Uh, Angela Merkel is going to come and talk about that later this week. So when I was speaking with the Iranian foreign minister, I specifically brought up that one point, and there's just no give on Iran's point, uh, Iran's part there. They say, look, we addressed this. We said we never wanted a nuclear weapon. And your own CIA director was just testifying before the Senate and said we weren't ever racing towards one, so what are you talking about? That, that's the line they're taking. The US is taking, well, if you never wanted to build one, you don't intend to build one, and you promise you won't ever build one in the future, why can't you just say that all over again in the separate agreement so that President Trump doesn't blow up the existing one we have? That's essentially the very complicated dance diplomatically that's happening behind closed doors, and they're not quite sure yet, A, if they can get every, everyone on the same page amongst our friends to agree to these three points, and then if they can sell it to the President to avoid on May 12th, putting sanctions back on Iran, which would, in effect, withdraw us from the deal. Putting, an, as to, to your point of dots being connected, putting us in the strange position next month of being on the precipice of withdrawing a program that U.S. intelligence says is working to the extent that Iran's nuclear program is frozen, when we're about to start talking to North Korea about doing something with their nuclear program, which is far more advanced uh, than Iran's was or is at this point. So. They're, they're also interconnected because it puts the U.S. in this strange position of breaking from its friends in Europe who want us to take this side deal and not blow up the international agreement um, and, and has our friends on the same side as China and Russia and Iran. So, John, you've been following developments out in that part of the world for a long, long time, and I know nobody's gotten rich predicting what Donald Trump's going to do. But what do you I think, think is, Trump has <laughs> yeah. what do you think is going to happen here? Um, I think several things are going on. First, I mean, I totally agree with what Margaret said. I think it's important to frame it in this way, which is President Trump loves uncertainty and hates ambiguity. <laughs> and they're really different. And I think that, that, in a way, the Iranians love ambiguity. And I think European diplomats love ambiguity, and there's a struggle between the president's desire to promote uncertainty, which he sees as enhancing his leverage, and the insistence of the Iranians and the Europeans of introducing some ambiguity to try to keep this moving forward. My guess is when the president is torn between his head and his heart, that he can have all the experts talk about the utility of prolonging ambiguity and at least we'll have some restrictions on the Iranians, his heart says, 
this is a really bad deal. And as I look at the people around the president, it's hard for me to, to see who's going to make a strong appeal to his head and say, you know what, let's, let's swallow our disappointment with this deal and keep on with it. And my guess of what happens from there is the Iranians say, this is awesome, and they start running down the ambiguity line where they show enough compliance to bring certainly the Chinese and the Russians, arguably countries like India, maybe even Europe and South Korea and Japan to say, well, the, Iran the Iranians are doing enough to let's try to keep some of this going, splitting the United States from its allies, which I see very much helping the Iranian cause and harming the American cause. But I think that, that my instinct is that the, the president is going to go with his gut. It's a bad deal. Nix it or fix it. And the Iranians say, we'll keep it with the rest of the world. You go have your perfect deal by yourself because there's nobody to deal with. I don't know why the Iranians would, would make concessions to prolong the deal. It seems to me that, that strategically, their best bet may be to split the United States from its allies. Sumi, uh, what do you see this, whatever happens here on this, uh, do you see that as having an impact on these meetings we're going to have uh, with North Korea? Well, I think, <clears throat> of course, I mean, if you completely scrap the Iran deal, your argument can be made that North Korea cannot trust any agreement uh, that they make with the United States. But to be honest, they already had trust deficit with the United States. They, they already what? have a trust deficit. Mm -hmm. Like they don't really trust the United States anyway. They've already had, from their perspective, this experience where they had 1994 agreed framework with the United States. And from their perspective, we, we reneged on the deal, which is, of course, not our perspective. They don't trust us. We don't trust them. So it's not going to make it more difficult, but it's not necessary that they were trusting us to begin with. Um, I think from President Trump's perspective, there, I think he, he thinks probably that it's increasing leverage with North Koreans to show, look, even the Iran deal is not strong enough for us. Um, so if you want to deal with the United States, we'll have to go for something tougher and stronger. So in his mind, perhaps it's increasing leverage with North Koreans, even though from North Korean perspective, it's a problem if we cannot keep with an agreement that we sign. Well, today the president was asked, uh, uh, what did denuclearization mean? Mm -hmm. And he said, getting rid of their nukes. Do you think that is in any way realistic? Could, could that possibly happen? Complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. We're talking about complete irreversible. I think that's a long way to go. North Koreans traditionally, when they said, they talked about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, if the regime security is guaranteed, they used to mean completely different thing. That's why they keep saying the Korean Peninsula to also talk about South Korea. If the regime security is guaranteed, what does that mean? It means a larger picture, larger deal with the United States, like have concluding a peace treaty, like evicting U.S. forces off the Korean Peninsula, perhaps decoupling U.S.-South Korea alliance, uh, U.S. getting rid of the nuclear extended umbrella we have over South Korea so that the regime can feel their security is guaranteed. So we used to mean very different things. We, the United States, when we talk about denuclearization, simply means North Korea getting rid of their nukes. North Korea, it means a little bit different thing. And it's not a new formulation. Kim Jong-il used to say this all the time, that this is a wish of my dying father, Kim Il-sung, to seek to commit it to denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So we will see 
Pompeo um, went to North Korea, met with Kim Jong-un. Now President Moon Jae-in is going to sit down with Kim Jong-un. He's probably going to try to seek clarification on that. Um, what, we really, what we're talking about when Trump actually sits down with Kim, that remains to be seen, but until now, we had two different formulations on denuclearization. Do you, does it bother you or are you concerned that the president may be raising expectations too high? Because, I mean, I think it's a really good thing that we're talking, but I'm also skeptical about what we can actually achieve here. I think we're better talking than not talking, but the president's talking about they've already agreed to this and that. In fact, they've agreed to nothing as far as you are. You are absolutely right. We agree, we've agreed to nothing. I do think this is better than where we were. Last time we had this conversation, we're talking about military strike or sure. bloody nose. So that certainly where we are today is better than where we were before. But I do agree that we have very heightened expectation. And I truly believe North Korean crisis is something that we cannot solve completely. It's, it's, a, it's, it's about managing the crisis. So if we go in with this expectation that we're going to get uh, North Korea to completely get rid of their nuclear weapons in a, in, in a way that we can verify that's irreversible, um, I think that's a, that's a completely unrealistic expectation. And, and Matt, we've talked about our allies in Europe. Uh, the reason I was so happy that you could come and be with us because you know Japan so well. Uh, how is all of this going down with the Japanese? Well, the Japanese are nervous. I mean, obviously they're within um, a short missile range of uh, North Korea, and a lot of these missiles have flown over Japanese territory. So from that perspective, they're nervous. And, you know, I think they're nervous about us and what we're going to do. Um, we didn't tell them, uh, Trump didn't tell them, didn't tell anybody that, that he was planning to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un. The Japanese don't like to be surprised in that way. Uh, and they have a couple of particular concerns uh, that go beyond the ones that we have. Uh, you know, obviously they're focused on those shorter range uh, missiles because those, those are the ones that are uh, directly potentially targeting them. Uh, they also have this um, long-standing uh, problem of these abductees, these people who were taken off the streets of Japan back in the 70s and uh, haven't been fully accounted for, and that's a big political issue uh, for, uh, for the Japanese, um, for Japanese politicians, for Prime Minister Abe. So they're looking at this with, uh, you know, nervously, and, um, you know, Abe was here last week uh, meeting with uh, President Trump, they played uh, another 18 <laughs> rounds, uh, another 18 holes of golf, and apparently that went pretty well. But um, I'm not sure. Um, and, and you know, there was a statement of meeting of the minds, but uh, on this issue broadly, um, reassurances on the abductees, for example, that was encouraging. But they're nervous. How is uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe's uh, uh, position right now? Uh, is his party still? Strong? Is it confident? Yeah, his, uh, his, his party is secure. I think they're going to be in, in charge for, for a little bit longer. He himself has been pretty badly weakened by this couple uh, of scandals, series of scandals, sort. this this most recent uh, reopening of a scandal about favoritism for a you know, right-wing group that he's been sort of dangerously um, playing with for, for many years and um, that they got a special deal on, a, on land, a land purchase for a school. And that really has uh, his popularity or his party's popularity has dropped, uh, or his cabinet rather, sorry, has dropped into the 30% range, which is um, for him very low, although by Japanese standards that's, mm -hmm. that's not bad. Uh, but, but seriously, he's, he's weakened and he, he um, may not get that third term that he's looking for um, later this year within his own party, which is what enables him to be prime minister. He had hoped to stay in power uh, through the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. 
but that's looking less, far less certain right now. So, uh, yeah. Margaret, what's going on at the State Department right now? Uh, Pompeo is coming in. I'm, I'm assuming that he's going to be confirmed now, but I'm not sure it looks that. that way. Yeah. It looks that way. He, uh, it was tough to get him out of committee, but he got out yeah. of committee, and it looks like he'll get that floor vote. So he will be leading when we go. Now, what, what do we know about these talks? I mean, how are they going? Do we know anything about how they're going to be structured? I take it Pompeo will be leading. Uh, the delegation there, and then the president will come, of course. Well, that's right, and we learned that last week about this, at, at that point, secret trip over Easter that the president then tweeted about and revealed and confirmed publicly that he sent the CIA director, who is soon to be, we think, the Secretary of State, uh, to have this meeting. And there was some criticism that he didn't come back with anything. You know, the last time, I remember you interviewing him, James Clapper, the, the Director of National Intelligence at the time, is the last someone of that stature to yeah. go to Pyongyang came back with some of the Americans who've been imprisoned. And Pompeo took some heat for not coming back with something. There's some speculation that maybe that's the big reveal for this summit when Kim Jong-un and President Trump meet, that these three Americans who remain in uh, imprisonment in some labor camps in North Korea may get released. There's a lot of talk and a lot of pressure around some deliverable like that because as whom he laid out, it's not entirely clear what they could diplomatically accomplish other than having the meeting itself at the end of May or early June, which is what the White House is guiding towards. But yes, it, it appears uh, Mike Pompeo, while he was not the Secretary of State, has been leading this. It, it really has been contact through intelligence channels. Uh, that's the strongest uh, level of contact. We've always had these diplomatic channels at the UN and elsewhere. Um, but it actually alienated to a large extent many of the diplomats at the State Department that they weren't part and parcel of this, that it was fully through the intelligence um, channel. So it's going to be interesting to see as Mike Pompeo transitions over to the State Department, who does he bring with him? Mm -hmm. Who are the trusted aides? Who does he put there in front of shaping Asia policy? Right now there is no Senate-confirmed head of Asia policy, an assistant secretary. There's someone acting who Tillerson pushed forward um, and has supported, but does that mean that person will be uh, the voice and face of, of Mike Pompeo? Will he bring other people in with him? We learned today through um, our reporting, our, our friend Jackie Almani and uh, David Martin, that, that there will be a new ambassador to South Korea. That vacancy has been there for well over a year, which is pretty astounding. No ambassador in Seoul. Uh, and it'll be Harry Harris, the, the head of Pacific Command, moving instead of going to Australia, going to South Korea. So he's starting Mike Pompeo to put people in place. But it's not clear exactly who the support structure is to carry out what will be presumably the, 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 all the mechanics of diplomacy that have to happen after Trump and Kim Jong-un shake hands. Sumi, what do we want when we have these meetings? What would be, what, what would we hope to get out of it? And, and talk about what North Korea wants. Well, let me start with the North Korea portion. I think that's easier. Okay. Um, I think, well, Kim Jong-un, I think right now has made a tactical shift, uh, has decided to postpone the suspend uh, missile testing for the nuclear testing. And I actually think that, and I think personally, who knows, I think he's trying to wait out the Trump administration. I think he's trying to buy some time. Um, and I think in some way, Trump and Kim Jong-un meeting could be successful uh, in the sense that they could have, they could agree to something because both parties have now incentive to 
leave that meeting with a win. So President Trump would definitely say, you know, I got North Korea to do X um, that no other, you know, my predecessors couldn't. So in theory, they could even have an agreement in principle. It could be a grandiose agreement, like a grand bargain, say, you know, some general statement about normalization or peace treaty uh, for denuclearization, and then let the lower level officials work that out. Uh, which is when the hard part would begin, of course, uh, or even some kind of a muddled outcome, like maybe North Korea will offer a uh, deal on intercontinental ballistic missile, which is sort of a nightmare scenario for Japan because that doesn't take care of Japan and South Korea's concern, but it does take care of U.S.'s concern in that North Korea's ability to hit or attack mainland United States homeland. So President Trump could leave that and have such a deal and sort of tell his supporters that, look, I was able to protect U.S. homeland. So in some sense, I'm not sure if, but people like Borton and Pompeo, I think, have um, uh, probably want something more out of that. But I think it's unrealistic, again, in this one meeting that's around the corner, that so much can be accomplished. Uh, it should just be, so I, ideally, I think it should be just the beginning of a process that we now get into this engagement process, but it's just the beginning first step. And Matt, what, what role do you see China uh, because when we get right back to it, the greatest challenge, in my, in my view, uh, for the United States right now is how we manage the China relationship. And, I mean, that seems to hover over all of this. Uh, is China helping with this right now? And, and what are they doing? And what would be the best thing they could do to help this along? I mean, what do they want out of this? Well, first of all, you're right. I think that managing China is the biggest challenge and kind of frankly that we face um, on any of these issues. But, um, but, but I think the Chinese have been helpful. Uh, you know, they uh, have been squeezing the North Koreans on, um, you know, coal and petroleum and other um, trade. Uh, about 90% of North Korea's trade is with China, and so they have a lot of leverage there. Of course, China doesn't want, China doesn't want a nuclear uh, Korean peninsula uh, and they're worried about instability uh, there. Um, but they don't want regime change. They don't want a unified uh, yeah, that, Korea under yeah. um, a, a U.S.-allied um, uh, force like um, a, a unified um, Korea might be. Um, and, so, uh, and they don't want refugees running across their border, flooding across their border. So the Chinese have a lot of um, other things at stake here. Uh, but, they, but they are concerned, I think, about this regime and about the nuclear um, issues and they're willing to go a little further than I think people thought. So in that sense, um, the Trump uh, pressure seems to have had some impact in Beijing. Xi Jinping was not happy. I think at the very beginning when he became president, there was a delegation from North Korea that came to Beijing and he basically told them, don't test. And about a, a week or two later, they tested and, and he was apparently livid and it's been sort of very rocky since then. Um, so John, we, we talked about what the impact of the Iran talks and whatever the president does will have on the talks in North Korea. Do you see North Korea as having any impact on what's going on in the Middle East right now? Uh, certainly, people in the Middle East look at North Korea, and, and I think the North Koreans look at the diplomacy in the Middle East. I think for China, the more that the United States is preoccupied with Iran, that's good for China. <clears throat> so there's certainly an interrelationship, and, and certainly as allies in Asia look to see what American red lines look like vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. They look at examples in the Middle East to, to judge 
American behavior. I think one of the other things that's going on here, and it comes out in what Matt was saying, what Sumi was saying, is you know, this is an administration that wants to solve problems. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of our allies think a lot of these problems can't be solved. They have to be managed. They have to be managed through processes, ongoing negotiations. And, and the president doesn't have a lot of patience for processes, and doesn't have a lot of trust in the people who work for him to manage these processes. And I just wonder, as we play this out over the next several years, how that will work, whether the president will develop more patience and appreciation for processes that don't solve problems, or whether he will reach more aggressively to solve problems that many people, especially the Chinese, think simply are insoluble. I'd say, too, one of the, it's interesting to look at the inverse of it. What does North Korea mean for the Middle East? One of the things I think we see with the administration is that their signals are, our focus is North Korea. The big win is North Korea. The big threat is North Korea. John Bolton, the national security advisor, a big arms control guy, he's going to be very focused on that win. And what you're hearing from the president is, I don't want to be engaged in the Middle East. I want more burden sharing. I want to get out of Syria. Yes, I know that means in some ways vacating to Iran, but make that the people in the neighborhood's problem. And that, while, while Iran, well, when it comes to Iran, Israel and the Trump administration have been lockstep on many things. On this particular issue, it does make the Israelis concerned because they are being told, you got to worry a little bit more. That, that That's very, uh, notable that you saw that Israeli strike on an Iranian base. In the past, you've seen Israeli strikes on Hezbollah uh, weapons transfers. Yes, a sort of proxy force for Iran, but this is more of a um, message to Israel, you need to be more muscular because we don't want to be as engaged there. We are more focused in some ways on North Korea. John, that, that just reminds me, when the, when the Iran deal was, we were agreeing to it, Israel, of course, was very much against it. How do they feel about it now? Well, what the prime minister says is fix it or nix it. And the prime minister, I think, is, is very interested in showing a lot of unity with President Trump. When I talk to experts throughout the Israeli government and with the leadership of all the other governments in the Middle East, they love to complain about the deal, but they can't sleep at night if they think about the world without the deal. What they would like is they would like the ability to complain, the ability to <laughs> criticize, right? But don't get rid of the thing because it's the only thing we have. And you know, and, and in some ways, the, the president is sort of calling the bluff by saying, look, this is a totally imperfect deal. I say, yes, it's imperfect, but it's a lot more perfect than nothing. And I sense, especially in the Gulf, a lot of disquiet about what not having to deal with me, and you certainly see it in Israeli intelligence, Israeli defense ministry, they don't want to think about an unconstrained Iran, which is what the deals collapse would bring. I want to go back to China. Uh, Matt, are we in a trade war with China? Not yet, but uh, I do think there's still the risk of that. Um, I think the, the past uh, week or so, or even a few days, uh, there's been some you know, some positive uh, developments in that the Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Mnuchin, said on Saturday, I think, that he was uh, interested in going to Beijing, and the Chinese issued a kind of terse statement saying, well, we'd welcome that, um, to talk about the trade uh, issues. It now looks, the President, I guess, today said that Mnuchin would be going with Lighthizer in the next few days. 
that's essential, again, as you said about North Korea, we need to talk uh, to resolve these issues. Um, I do think that the president um, feels pretty strongly about this issue. I mean, it's the one issue that for 30 years he's had a strong view on. Uh, it was his, his, his concerns about unfair trade uh, and trade deficits really go back to the days when we had trade friction with Japan. Uh, a lot of that anxiety has been transferred to China and Mexico and other places now, although he still has that bee in his bonnet about Japan, it seems. Uh, and so I think this is something he feels pretty strongly about, that is bringing down big trade deficits. And we have a big one with China on a bilateral basis, $375 billion. Um, uh, with Japan about 70 measured by goods and he's very fixated on those things he wants to bring them down so I do think there's still a risk uh, that we we may not be able to solve the problem in a way that makes the president satisfied and and uh, and, and there's some actually there's another risk which is that that the president might accept a short-term deal I mean it's in a way maybe analogous to the North Korea problem which is that you know he could accept a deal which looks good on one level where it, you know you get a substantial dollar reduction in the deficit because China buys more Boeing aircraft or soybeans or sells fewer um, whatever they're you know going to limit uh, to sell here um, manufactured goods or toys or whatever it is to, to try to bring down that deficit by some significant uh, margin. He declared, the president says, I got them to reduce their deficit, declares victory, and then you leave festering all of these real problems because the administration's not wrong that there are some, some real problems with Chinese practices on uh, subsidization, um, uh, uh, sponsoring these state-owned enterprises that they're uh, promoting, they're uh, using force technology transfer, enabling intellectual property theft. There are a lot of real issues here. They have this big plan called Made in China 2025 to seize the commanding heights of these key industries, electric vehicles, artificial intelligence, robotics, advanced biotechnology, civil aviation. And, um, and they're putting a lot of money and, you know, frankly, unreasonable practices, policies up against those things. And, you know, we got to take those things on. And so we shouldn't settle for just a, a, a simple uh, fix. And, and so that's the uh, risk. Jim Lewis uh, from CSIS, uh, our, our cyber guy, I've read a paper he wrote the other day. He said the main thing we need from China is just to get them to agree to play by the rules. To play by the uh, rules. To play yes. by the rules. Yep. Uh, and uh, that that will be the greatest advance if we can if we if we can move that along but do you see the sudden you know decision on on tariffs and all this and uh, and trade reform as as the president i guess calls it do you see that impacting on these negotiations we're having in europe on the iran deal and and in well, I mean, I think these things are connected. You think you're right to say the dots are, are connected. I mean, we need our allies to deal with a lot of these problems, mm -hmm. and that means in Europe and Japan and Korea, I mean, South Korea. Um, and if we're slapping tariffs on people, as we've done in all those aforementioned people, or we've threatened to, um, we've given a temporary reprieve to the European Union on the steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, we haven't given that reprieve to Japan. Uh, Japan's going to have to apply product by product for exclusions or exemptions. 
Um, you know, you know it's, it's, it's another slap at the people we need to help address these issues. So yeah. I think, you know, if I thought it was going to actually solve the underlying problems that we have in the international economy, I'd be more supportive. But I just don't think that the tariffs are really the answer. They're going to they're going to cost uh, consumers here in America. I mean, business and personal consumers are going to pay higher prices. Uh, you're going to be violating a lot of these important international rules. And if we want China to play by the rules, we got to play by the rules ourselves. So I think that there are some um, huge costs with taking this approach. Uh, and it, those include um, getting allies to be less enthusiastic about supporting us on some of these other Well, I think there could be a political backlash in this country, especially in places like Iowa, which sells two-thirds of their soybeans and, I think, half their pork to China. Right. Uh, it would certainly, uh, we go back, get down to my home state of Texas, mm -hmm. which is the number one exporting state uh, in the country. Uh, Texas exports more than... California and New York uh, combined, yep. and uh, people are very leery about tampering with uh, NAFTA down there because Canada and Mexico are our, our leading uh, trading partners. I think if they blow up the NAFTA uh, agreement, uh, you may see Texas, one of the most Republican states in the union, I mean, go into depression. You have one million jobs that are dependent on NAFTA down there, and business is very wary of where all this goes. But getting back to what we're talking about here, uh, Sumi, do you have any idea where this meeting is going to be? I have my guesses. Um, unless Kim Jong-un decides to fly in a borrowed plane, I think Swedes have offered him their plane. There's actually a logistical issue of, I don't think they have a plane that... They don't? No, they don't. They don't have a plane that can safely take him down <laughs> you know, this that far. Reminds me. No. I read where they were thinking about asking the Russians to give them a plane, and then they <laughs> decide, no, it would be bugged. We can't do that. Right. I mean, and, and there's a face issue, too. You're still a leader of a country. I mean, it might, you know, it might be a little bit embarrassing to fly on a borrowed plane. But they don't actually have a plane that can take him to Sweden or Switzerland. They would have to, he would have to fly. It's not like he's going to fly commercial, right? So there's actual yeah. issue. Even flying to Guam or Hawaii, I ask, I don't, I don't think that's, uh, there's no, even a pilot, I don't think there's an experienced pilot who have flown that far in yeah. North Korea. So there is actual logistical security issue with that. So if you just look at the region, is Mongolia a sexy enough place for President Trump? I don't know. DMZ, President Moon is already meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un there, so maybe Trump doesn't like it because it's not historic, it's not first. Um, then it really leaves Pyongyang and possibly even South Korea. But you know, Pyongyang, I'm sure his advisors are advising against that for a whole host of reasons. But it will be historic, it will be, and, and I think North Korea just looking like they're making some concessions, even though I don't think it's a real concession, just recently when they said they're going to suspend the testing and close the nuclear site. Um, maybe they're trying to entice Trump to come to Pyongyang because there will be a big win for North Korea. That's, that, that can, they can say, look what we've done with our nuclear program now. The President of the United States has come all the way to North Korea. So if my money, if I have to put my money and I'm a gambling person, I'll still put it on Pyongyang, but I don't know. Margaret, what will this look like if this summit fails? <laughs> if it oh, fails? Yes. Well, I'm worried about what it would look like and if we can get cameras into these, into Pyongyang. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Because um, there's some question, what, what would yeah. that look like? What access would there be? 
uh, if it fails, um, well, I think yeah. that that's typically why you have the legwork done in advance so you don't have the embarrassment of the two leaders being face-to-face -face and, and not having something, um, which is why I think some are speculating there may be some baked-in deliverables like the Americans yeah. coming home or something like that to make it look like it didn't fail, even right. if it really did. At least you got something out of it um, to go all that way. Yeah. But if it, the worst case is you know a blow up in the room, and then maybe it just brings you back to the military options. That may be the worst, not the worst case. That may be, um, in some ways, just about as bad as if you come to some agreement that doesn't really have any depth to it or detail to it. So that you say, look, I got to win. They agreed to this word denuclearization, right? And well, what does that mean to each of you? And if you get an agreement on paper, then you don't have the follow through and the details and the legwork. I mean, we need, uh, as you hear again and again from experts, we need people on the ground to go in and actually inspect the, the nuclear facilities, to go in and, and put their eyes uh, on some of these goods to assess as to whether our intelligence actually matches the reality. Um, and as you heard from Condoleezza Rice and, and other formers, that there's a, sometimes a huge difference between what we think and what was real once we got on the ground and assessed. Um, so there, if, if you got even that kind of, of progress, inspections, that's something that's a win. But that is far from the full denuclearization that President Trump says that he wants. And, so if you get a half measure, maybe that's worse than... You know, you else. also bring up a, a very good point. Uh, people that I talk to uh, in the intelligence and in diplomatic business tell me that we really know less about North Korea than any other place on Earth. Is, do you agree no, with that, no, Sunit? Absolutely. I mean, this is why we say it's the hardest of hard target countries in yeah. the world from the intelligence community's perspective. But what you were saying is absolutely right. I think every single time there was an agreement, it fell apart over verification. And to be frank, intelligence community does not know exactly how many weapons they have, where they're hidden. There are a lot of covert facilities. There are thousands of underground tunnels and bunkers. bunkers. So it's going to be, that verification part is going to be very, very difficult to achieve in North Korea. John, before we uh, kind of open it up to questions from the audience, I, I, let's get back to Iran just a little bit. Uh, Angela Merkel is coming here toward the end of the week. Uh, will she be saying the same things to the president that Macron is saying, or will she have a different uh, take? What do the Germans want here? Um, I think the Germans have fewer ambitions with this president, but I think they ultimately want to get to the same kind of place, which is that a process that embeds the Iranians in a set of discussions that sets standards for behavior, that gives us increasing uh, insight into their program, that th that's what the ambition should be. I think that the, the great difference is that the French president believes that he's like the Trump whisperer, no, and that, and that he has a special <laughs> relationship with the president that he can use to advance European interests. And when, whenever I'm in, in international conferences with French diplomats, whenever they talk about Europe, they really mean France. <laughs> and, I, and, I think, no, and I think that the, the French president sees this as a way to establish France's leading role by rebuilding the ties between Europe and the United States. I think Angela Merkel has a much more conservative approach, but I think she's trying to get to very much the same place. She's not 
sure how to get there, and I think the, the French president thinks he has, has the idea. All right, well, let's uh, have a few questions. This lady right here. Um, Tell us who you are. I think there's a microphone. Hi, um, my name is Angelita. I just want to get the opinion of the panel with regards to, I think there's a bigger geopolitical context with Iran and the Middle East and, and in North Korea and, um, and China, which basically goes to the regional supremacy ambitions of both China and Russia. So, I mean, Iran is within the context of Russia wanting to be dominant in that region, and then North Korea is with, with uh, China. And the problem, too, is that both Russia and China are known not to be going by the rules, because I think, honestly, it would be quite politically naive to ex for us to expect them, because they have bullied territories out of the neighboring countries, plus they're both building their military. So I also thought that President Trump has some wisdom in terms of the other countries not being able to determine which leverage he's going to use. So I just want to get op opinion from the panel with regards to my statements. Thank you. Who'd like to take a shot at that? I mean, just my, my sense is that Russia's ambition in the Middle East is to keep the Middle East from becoming a, a unified asset for the United States. So if the U.S has trouble in the Middle East. The U.S. Is, is embedded in the Middle East. That's good for Russia because it creates this churn that keeps the Middle East from, from being sort of a, a solid American ally. I think the Chinese are delighted for the U.S. to be distracted by the Middle East, delighted for the U.S. to send carriers off the coast of Iran because a carrier off the coast of Iran is not a carrier off the coast of China. Um, I don't think that either Russia or China have positive ambitions for the Middle East. I think they think of it in terms of blocking American ambitions, either in the South China Sea or, or blocking the United States in the region. John, do you think we're leaving Syria? The president's talking about, I want to get out of there. I want other people to do it. You, do you see that as happening? I agree with Margaret. I think that, that the, this administration, like the last administration, thinks we are overcommitted in the Middle East. Middle Eastern governments uh, are taking the warm sentiments of the Trump administration, and I think they're convincing themselves it's not true. But I think the deep reality is the United States has decided 15 years in the Middle East, we've spent a lot of money, we have made things a lot better. It's time to, to be much more selective, and, and uh, our presence in Syria um, doesn't have a clearly articulated goal. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to have a goal, but I think it's, it's likely to diminish sooner rather than later. Okay. Here, right here. Thank you. John Zan with CTI TV. My question is for Sumi and uh, Matthew. What are the, uh, the best and the worst scenarios for the uh, Moon Kim Summit and Trump Kim Summit? Thank you. All yours. <laughs> Um, Moon Kim Summit, I think it's going to go pretty well. Um, I, think they are, I think they're talking about denuclearization and what way they could possibly have a peaceful settlement. Um, I don't expect too much out of it, honestly, except if Moon can get out of Kim Jong-un, that clarification of denuclearization, that North 
Korea is truly willing to give up nuclear weapons and phrase it in a way, a sentence that's different from the normal denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula if the regime security is guaranteed. And already North Korea alluded to the fact that they don't need US troops to get out of North Korea, so that would be South Korea. So they would be good if he could get some of those kind of deliverables from North Korea, um, that kind of concrete statement that would make it easier for Trump, Kim Jong-un summit. Um, so you're asking most idealistic scenario, optimistic, or realistic Kim Jong-un Trump summit? Because, uh, because that's different, right? Um, I think, so I, you know, optimistically, if Kim Jong-un truly had a change of heart, obviously, um, and he's serious that he wants to turn a different page for North Korea, um, that would be the ideal path. I just have really hard time believing that's going to happen. Um, so if they could just at least come to have a good meeting, establish good chemistry, and agree to some of, some of the basic things and set up a negotiation process where then um, it you know, leaves Washington, Pyongyang, and their low-level officials to sort of go off on this path of trying to have a you know, more it's a negotiated path rather than a conflict. I guess that's, that's the best that we can expect. The problem, I think, is going to be Ambassador Bolton um, and the advisor is going to have different kind of plan um, because they know that this is North Korea's play is to buy time. So what I think Ambassador Bolton is going to do is try to expedite the process, right? So he was going to say, oh, North Korea, you want to denuclearize and give up nuclear weapons and you're even willing to dismantle? Let's go. Let's like a Libyan style, in a way. Let's kind of go in and let's do this. Um, and I think he's going to look to the intelligence community to see evidence of North Korea cheating or, or some not to sort of, in a way, undermine the deal. Um, so anyway, I think the problem is going to be sort of the time frame. North Korea is going to drag this out, trying to really play this along, and U.S. is going to try to expedite. At least I think this is what Ambassador Borton and Pompeo is going to try to do. Matt, you want to add into that? Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's see. Over here. Hi, um, Augustus Alzona. I've been here. Tell several. us who you are. Oh, Augustus Alzona. Uh, probably the only uh, loyal Trump supporter in this room, but uh, anyway, that said. Um, if you were the, the president today, what would you do any differently than what President Trump is doing regarding Iran, North Korea, and or China, in terms of the diplomacy, military, foreign policy, as opposed to trade issues, just leaving trade issues out of it completely. Madam President, would you like to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I can't pr express an opinion as a journalist, but what I can tell you is what um, others who are advising the president, even within his own national security team, would like him to do. And that's not necessarily, I think that's part of what John was referring to, the difference between the head and the gut um, for President Trump. Uh, oftentimes, that is in the National Security Council, um, his gut versus the head of his national security advisors telling him to do something far different. So his national security team is telling him, keep the Iran nuclear deal. Don't withdraw, don't unfreeze it for all the reasons that you've heard. Um, at least that's what Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, testified to publicly recently, that he was 
saying, yes, actually, Iran is abiding by it technically. It's not, as Secretary uh, Mattis has said, this is not a friendship deal. This doesn't mean we love Iran, but they're abiding by the small portion of things that we asked them to stop doing. Uh, so that's what his national security team would advise them to do, keep it, rather than threaten to tear it up. They're not opposed to coming up with some side deal, which is part of what we've been talking about, some other agreement amongst our friends that won't blow up the deal, but will save face to allow the president to say he fixed it without nixing it, as, as Bibi Netanyahu, his, his friend in Israel, is, is setting it up. Either, it's either or, right? Um, in terms of diplomacy with, sorry, US, China, and uh, North Korea as well, right? Um, his, I, I, within his national security team, there's deep disagreement over China. Or in, and within his many advisors, not even on his national security team on China, there's deep disagreement, and you've seen that play out. Whether you're listening to Peter Navarro uh, talking about their long, his long-standing beliefs of there being a China problem versus some of the more um, targeted uh, things that, say, his National Economic Council advisor, Larry Kudlow, would like to see happen because he's more concerned about the markets. So um, he's getting different advice from within his own cabinet and advisors on China. Uh, as, as far as what option is best, I can't tell you, but what I could tell you is that he has long believed that tariffs are the answer. He has long been supportive of this worldview. And so there's a tug of war between his gut on tariffs and what some of his advisors are saying, actually, this may you know, help out the farmers in Iowa um, and elsewhere that Bob talked about, that, that maybe what you're looking at as a tactical play strategically could be damaging if you go through with that. I'm going to answer it just because it gives me an opportunity to do something that I seldom do, with, <laughs> and that is, quote, Martin Van Buren. <laughs> Anybody quoted him lately? I ran across a quote uh, from Martin Van Buren the other day that said, government should be based not on the emotion of the moment, but on sound second thought. I would just telegraph that to say, tweet less. Just one conceptual thing. I think the president makes it much too hard on our allies. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our friends really want to help us, and they can't figure out how. And it, to me, our, one of our remarkable strengths in the world is people want to help us, right? We've created this world where people feel vested in the world we've created and want to help us. And I think when you talk about Prime Minister Abe to, to a whole range of people, I said, I can't figure out where they're going, and therefore I can't figure out how to help them get there. Sumit, you want to add to that? No, absolutely. I was going to say that's, that's an excellent point. I mean, even when Trump said you know, somehow he linked the free trade deal, implementing that with getting answer to North Korean crisis, I mean, what does that have to do with anything? I think you're absolutely right. Um, that's, it's not helpful. Or continually harping on South Korea, for example, on burden sharing, on everything else. Why do we need troops there? Why do we need to have to, so much cost and all this? Also, something that I would have done differently, not get out of TPP. That's a major one. For example, he should get back in there uh, with TPP. I mean, I have a whole long list of things, but they will take a well, lot. Let, let me, if I just say one, <laughs> 30 seconds, maybe I should 
take a second thought and not say anything more. But but Martin I, I was just picking up on that point. I, Go back and I, I won't tweet. I, I won't tweet about it. I promise. <laughs> but but I, I would say picking up on this point, I think we can't just play defense. We, you know, when it comes especially to China, the managing China, we can't just play defense because China is going to do what it's going to do. We do have to play some. You know, we have to brush China back when it's not behaving well, or or uh, you know, we have to protect the crown jewels. So that that the, the, that kind of defense. You know, if, if they're trying to acquire critical technologies that, that, that we don't want them to have. We have to do that, but we have to play offense too. We have to have something to offer, uh, particularly in the Asia Pacific region, where, which is where I've spent most of my career. If we don't offer things like TPP or you know, some kind of support for economic development and infrastructure, and you know, I was in Myanmar a couple weeks ago, all they want is they want power, that is you know, electric power, and they want human capacity because they know that after 50 years of isolation, they don't have the people to rebuild their country. And who can offer that? I mean, China can offer a lot of money to do that stuff, but, um, but we, we can offer that stuff. Uh, we can offer good products and services. We can offer the rule of law that comes with that, the capacity training. Um, we have a lot to offer, and, and these countries you know, want that from us, and I think we have to play offense. By the way, we also have to invest in ourselves, and we have to spend more on all the things that, you know, infrastructure, education, skills, uh, R&D, we, we have to play this game as well. So that's my, that's my answer, is we can't just play defense. We gotta all be- All right, I think we got time. We'll do one, this gentleman right here, uh, had his hand up. Maybe one more question after this. Oops. Mark's not it. Hold on one second. Yeah. Oh, another one. There's a backup there. Yeah, there's a backup. So, second time. Uh, Christoph von Marshall, I'm the inaugural Helmut Schmidt Fellow at the German Marshall Fund. I'm from Germany. I want to continue on the point uh, John Altermann made. It's really difficult for your allies to help in this situation uh, because it's clear if somebody talks to the Iranians at the moment, it should be the Europeans. But the Europeans don't start to talk with them unless they have the commitment from Donald Trump if they make the political investment to go there and talk. They don't want to come back with a deal and then Trump says, I don't like it, and it was for nothing. So at the moment, there might be back-channel talks, I'm pretty sure, but at the moment we are still stuck in a situation where the Europeans and the Americans are talking what they should talk about with the Iranians. And my, May 12th is approaching, so could you comment on, on, on that situation, how we get out of this time pressure? I mean, the, the whole process was set up to hold the Iranians to account in case the Iranians want to bolt from this deal. And what you're having is an American president who every single time this thing comes around, which is several times a year, says, I think I might bolt from the deal. That's not what it was engineered to do. And, and I think it's, it's a challenge for the president because he does have this, this head-heart problem. Mm -hmm it forces him to keep doing things he doesn't want to do. I mean, so you can be a congressional fix, except Congress hasn't leaned forward to fix it. Allies are trying to work with him. I think the president um, is, is torn about what to do, but it, it seems hard for me to imagine a way that we get out of this, not perpetual, but recurring sense of uncertainty, which I think ultimately the president likes. The president likes to be able to create uncertainty so he can decide. The president doesn't like ambiguity. A lot of diplomacy relies on constructive ambiguity. All right, one more question. This lady right here. 
Hi, Rachel Oswald, Congressional Quarterly. This question is primarily for Sue Mi. Um, what impact do you think it has on Kim Jong-un's thinking that we have John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, you know, at top levels now, given comments that they have both made in support of, uh, uh, you know, uh, military offensive attacks on North Korea and assassinating Kim Jong-un? I mean, would that, would that have an effect realistically on, their th on Kim Jong-un's thinking if some kind of proposal is made for a deal that, I mean, will this decrease U.S. credibility in addition to the question of what we're doing with the Iran deal, that we have these members in the administration? Sumi, why don't you Yeah, talk yeah, yeah no. Um, I, I can see what you're saying in that sense that can Kim Jong-un trust any deal that he signs uh, with the United States, like the Iran deal, um, because you have somebody like Bolton who's been talking about regime change or regime decapitation or military strike 15 years ago. And he's, he's quite hawkish on North Korea, we know that. Um, but on the other hand, you can assume that Kim Jong-un is a very astute guy, he's a smart guy, he knows. So in a way, um, he knows these players. So I don't think he's gonna come in and sort of think that he can just play the old game that he's been playing necessarily. I mean, that's probably his wish. But in a way that it, could, it would make that difficult for Kim Jong-un too because he knows that people like Bolton will be looking for him to cheat. He'll be looking at the intelligence community saying, tell me if North Koreans are cheating or going back on a, reneging on a deal. So in, in some sense, it'll be difficult for Kim Jong-un to just completely play the exact playbook uh, of his father. So it's depending, but either way, I do think it does matter to his psyche. It's not something that he's not considering. He's, I'm sure he's thinking about it quite a lot. Uh, one of the advantages for North Korea is that they have 100%, they can spend 100% of their energy focused on us and how to deal with us when we are obviously, we have 50 different things that we have to worry about at any given moment. Um, but he's smart, he's astute, and I think, um, he, he's quite aware of our team, the national security team, and he's coming with some sort of a plan. I, I, I think we, we, have, we often underestimate Kim Jong-un, and I don't think we should do that. I think we need to be, and in that sense, I think we are not prepared enough, and we just, the timeline is just too short to have really thorough preparation for this meeting. All right, well, thank you all very much. Uh, thank you. Great to have you.